There. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Really good to see all of you. Uh, it's just good to get together on the weekends and uh, worship God together. The presence of God is in this place. Amen. Um, you know, sometimes you can just sense him. And even if you can't, just know that he's here. doesn't matter. It's not about feelings. It's just about knowing that he's, uh, he's present. It's good to worship him. And then we just crack open the word and, and uh, wrestle with it and, and digest it. I don't know how many of you were at the party on Friday night, but we, we uh, had a great time. Yeah, some of you were there. Uh, woo! Uh, there's some crazy people around here. You were out of control. Uh, we, we just took over a club in Monomedi, uh, and uh, my band, Not Dead Yet, and Norm's band, The Kingdom, uh, played. We were the warm-up for them. And it was just such a fun time. I, I, I just, it was one of the funnest times I've had at a club in, uh, ever. It was, the energy in the room was fantastic. And see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And this is kind of an evangelism strategy. Uh, the goal is to take like, a band like, like Norm has, which is really, really good. Uh, I mean, these guys are, are top-notch. And uh, to have them going into clubs and to have some of us who feel called to go to those clubs, kind of as groupies, and we just throw parties. And um, in doing that, we build relationships. And in doing that, we tear down stereotypes that people have about Christians. For example, on, on Friday, I was walking out uh, at one point, and I, I had to go between a kind of crowd of people who were talking about, you know, the, the, the event. And as I'm turning the corner, I hear one of the guys say, I couldn't believe it, the whole band was a, bench, a bunch of effing Christians. And I went, yes! See, that is fantastic. See, that, that, that Jesus followers could actually play that good. It was a friend of Norris band, not mine. Uh, and have that much fun. See, that already is tearing down stereotypes. And nowhere in the Bible are we encouraged to be, you know, relying on people visiting our gatherings uh, for evangelism. That's okay, invite people, but we're to be taking it to them. And uh, I think it's so cool that Norm's band's called The Kingdom because we're bringing, we've got to take the kingdom to them. And where are they meeting? Well, clubs. And so while most churches are telling you stay away from clubs, we're saying, let's invade the clubs. Uh, you know, that's what Jesus did. <laughs> and show them a party. You know, I, really, the, the club owner was just blown away uh, by the, 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 the party atmosphere and the fun that was there. And, and it's not for everybody. There's folks who have issues with that, and that's fine. But, but we'll be saying more about that in uh, the months to come. All right. We're going to be talking about this topic this morning that is to take a radical left turn from party to hell. Uh, we're talking about hell. <laughs> and we're talking about hell because it's in the text today. We just go through the text. just kind of... Nothing too flamboyant. We just study the text. So I'm entitling this Tormented in the Flames. Tormented in the Flames. Because the guy we're going to be reading about here this morning is, is, uh, was tormented in the flames. This is a very tough and I think important issue, at least for some of us. Um, you know, we talk about the problem of evil. I write a lot about the problem of evil. I think it's an it's a, it's a important problem to address. It's the problem of how could an all-good and all-powerful God create a world that is this messed up and where there's this much pain. Earthquakes and famines and diseases and wars and whatever. Now, that's a legitimate problem when we need to address it. But if that's a problem, how much more of a problem is it 
to accept that an all-good, all-loving, all-powerful God tortures people in hell eternally? That's a legitimate question. And that's what we're going to be addressing today. That's the problem of evil on steroids. I mean, that's, that, that's the maximum problem of evil. And I want to start with, with a word of prayer. In fact, I want to include in this prayer this. I just was told a minute ago um, that there was a, a major earthquake in Costa Rica. Uh, and I don't know anything about the damage or the number of lives that were lost. But that's the problem of evil. And so let's pray for this message and let's uh, pray for Costa Rica. We've got some parishioners in Costa Rica. And so let's pray for them. Father, in Jesus' name, first we want to bring before you the people of Costa Rica. We don't know, I don't know at least anything about the, the particulars, but you know. And we live in a war zone where even the laws of nature have been corrupted by principalities and powers and nothing operates the way it was originally created to operate. And so disasters like this occur. But God, our heart goes out to them, and we pray in Jesus' name that you'll raise up resources to minister to those people and bring your comfort to those people. Uh, Lord God, empower the churches in the areas to use this as an opportunity to meet the needs of people and draw people in. God, comfort the grieving, those who lost loved ones during this time. Uh, Lord, just uh, put it on people's hearts around the world, including our hearts, uh, what you would have us to do to minister to these folks who have been through this, this, this uh, terrible thing. And God, there is, in many people's lives, hell on earth. And then there's this issue of hell afterwards. And Lord, I, I want to pray that you'll use this message to uh, collapse fears that, are, that people might have about that. Although, for those who need to be afraid, God, create a fear. Uh, and, uh, and work in their life as well. God, help us to be a people who get our life from you and you alone, and not from our theological opinions on matters. And God, therefore, free us up to learn and to grow and to be okay with disagreements and uncertainties because our life is found in you, not in our theological opinions. And as we wrestle with this here this morning, God, just just help us, God, to, to, to be open and to explore your word and to be authentic and real. I pray, Lord, for everyone in this auditorium. I pray for those who are listening through podcasting or through television, that you open our hearts, open our minds, open our lives to receive your world, build your kingdom, do all that needs to be done in Jesus' name. We pray, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 We're talking about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's in Luke 16. And I'm not going to deal with the whole parable here this morning. I'm just going to deal with the first five verses, and then we'll come back to it next week and, and deal with the parable as a whole. But I want to just chew on the first five verses here. In verse 19, it says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. The purpose of noting that he was dressed in purple is that purple in the ancient world was the rarest form of dye, and so only the wealthiest people could wear purple garments. And the purpose for saying that he was dressed in fine linen is that that would refer to his undergarments. And only the wealthy got to wear undergarments in the ancient world. The, uh, underwear as a common thing is a rather recent uh, phenomenon in history. And this guy not only had underwear, but he, he had fine linen for his undergarments. So he had underwear and he wore purple, which in the ancient world made him rich. He had it going on. Uh, the bars was a little lower back then. <laughs> At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. Covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his 
sores. A couple points here. The fact that this guy had a gate is for the testimony to how rich he was because only the, the, the wealthiest of people living in humongous mansions had gates. Uh, and so this guy was very, very rich. He was at the top of the socioeconomic strata. Lazarus was at the other end of the spectrum. The fact that he was laid at the gate shows that he was a person with serious disabilities. He didn't walk there. Someone had to take him there and lay him down. Having disabilities in the ancient world usually meant that you were condemned to a life of begging because they didn't have a lot of social safety nets uh, back in those days. You were a beggar. So he's begging, uh, waiting for a crumb to fall from the master's table. That was an idiomatic way of, of really referring to somebody who was living the life of a dog. You might remember a time in the Gospels where a lady says to Jesus, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Well, this was a way of saying Lazarus was, was in a begging position like a dog, just waiting for this rich guy to throw him a crumb once in a while. You know, throw me a bone, just give me a favor. So he's in the position of a dog. But he's worse than in a position of a dog because not only is he not eating like a dog, but the dogs are feasting off of him. They're licking his sores. Apparently, Lazarus had some kind of skin disease on top of everything else he had going against him. And the dogs would lick the sores. And the fact that he couldn't shoo away the dogs is, is either a testimony to how serious a disability he had, or maybe it was a testimony to how emaciated he was uh, and how weak he was, that he didn't have the energy or the care to even uh, shoo away the dogs. He just let them lick his sores. The point of all that is to say he, the rich guy is way up here at the top, and Lazarus is as low and is at the bottom of, the, of human existence as you can possibly get. Then it says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And in the Greek, it literally has carried him to Abraham's bosom or chest. Uh, in the King James Version, it says that they carried him into Abraham's bosom. And I, in my early Christian days, heard sermons on how there was a, some location just outside of heaven called Abraham's bosom where the righteous go all the way to get in heaven. I don't know if anyone else heard that weird doctrine. But I thought, what a weird name for a place, Abraham's bosom. It's like there's this giant Abraham and all the righteous people go into his chest. <laughs> Odd. But, but it doesn't mean anything of the sort. Um, the phrase simply uh, denotes not primarily a location, but a, a relationship. To be on someone's or by someone's chest is to be dear to them, close to their heart. And so this rich man, or the, 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 this uh, uh, Lazarus was carried into a relationship that, uh, uh, with Abraham that was intimate. And in the ancient Jewish world, they usually looked at Abraham as the one who would greet the righteous when they got to heaven. Just like we refer to, you know, when, when he died, he went to heaven and uh, Peter met him. You know, Peter's at, at the pearly gates. So we kind of see Peter as the hero. Well, they saw Abraham as the hero, and, um, and so since Jesus is telling this parable to a Jewish audience, he uses the typical Jewish trappings uh, and ways of thinking about heaven. So the guy goes to Abraham's side. The rich man also eventually died and was buried in Hades, where, uh, in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. After death, the fortunes of Lazarus and the rich man are reversed 
and intensified. Now it's the rich man who's, or the poor man who's on top and the rich man who is on the bottom. Now, as I said, we'll discuss the, the, the central points of this parable next week. I want to just focus on these five verses and use it as a way of talking about the biblical teaching on hell because that's how these verses have usually been interpreted. And I want to say a preliminary word here before we even get into the substance of the message. I know in a lot of churches, it's sort of the pastor's job just to, be, to dispense truth, and it's the job of the attenders to just receive that truth. Uh, where the pastor's sort of this, the truth dispenser. And in, in those contexts, you're not really encouraged to think a whole lot or to question a lot or, or to think critically about things. In fact, in, in many religious contexts, um, if you question what the pastor says or question what the church believes or question the church tradition, well, you'll be looked at with suspicious eyes and maybe even meet a lot of hostility. Uh, that is not our attitude here at Woodland Hills Church. Just want you to know that. Uh, we don't think that God asks us to check our brain at the door when we come in. In fact, what I see in Scripture is that God encourages us to think. That's one of the ways we worship God with all of our mind. And you'll find heroes throughout the Bible who, who wrestled with God, and they questioned God, and they questioned things. And I don't think God is offended by that. I, I think in some ways that can be a sign. Some people think that questioning is the opposite of faith, and I don't think that for a moment. Sometimes not questioning is a sign that you don't really care. You don't care enough to think about stuff. Uh, and so God is okay with our questioning and we're called to be people who are honest. And I think if you're honest and you're a thinking person, you're going to have questions about stuff. We're to get all of our life from Jesus Christ, not from all of our theological opinions, which is important. Because if you're getting life from being right about everything, including your view of hell, well, then the minute I or anyone else questions it, you're going to get angry. You'll also find that it's impossible for you to learn anything. Because your life is in believing, is founded in believing that you already know. I know they say that if you want to build a big church, you don't want to cause a lot of, you know, stay away from controversial issues, you don't want to cause a lot of questioning. People don't like to. They've done studies on this. The average person doesn't like to be forced to think a lot. And so you just state things as though everything was clear and unambiguous and, and convince people that what they believe is the truth and that's what they want. And as a matter of fact, I have gotten more than a few emails from people who have told me that they don't like to come to the church anymore because they don't like to go someplace where some of their traditional beliefs are going to be questioned or where they're forced to think and question their traditional beliefs. It irritates them. Which is a great policy if you can assume that everything you've ever been taught is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Yeah, fine, well then you don't have to think about anything anymore. But lucky you, the one person on the planet who got it all in eighth grade in Sunday school class. The rest of us have to wonder about what is true. My working assumption is that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and I try to get my thought to line up with the, 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 the biblical teaching. But I'm not always convinced that what people think the Bible teaches is what the Bible actually teaches. And so it is okay. We've got to kind of give each other some slack here. We may agree or disagree, but it's okay to wonder out loud as an honest person with the text. That's not a lack of faith. That's a sign of faith. Now, in this passage, this guy is being tortured. There's no other really way, way of putting it. He's in fire, but the fire doesn't burn him up. It just torments him. He cries out for pity. The least gesture he'd be thankful for. If, if Lazarus would just dip his finger in the water and put it on his tongue, it would cool it for a second. And that's all this guy hopes for. Apparently his tongue is burning up. He's beyond thirst. He's tortured. He cries out for a little bit of mercy. 
The text doesn't say this, but the traditional interpretation holds that that exquisite, excruciating torture goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. After 40 trillion, trillion years, 40 trillion epochs, you're no closer to being done with the exquisite torture than you were the first second you began to experience it. That's the traditional view. And this text is among a few texts that have been used to inspire that vision of hell. It's been used to inspire most of the art of, uh, on hell throughout the Middle Ages. You go to some of the old cathedrals in Europe and you'll see some of the most exquisite scenes of hell you can imagine. And some artists painted absolutely uh, nightmarish, ghoulish, macabre pictures of, uh, of hell. I was going to show a few of those, but we decided that they were just too pornographic uh, to, to, to show here. I mean, you got not just the fire and the torture, but you got demons doing f- terrible stuff to people and eating. Oh, it's just, it's, it's, it's like nightmare on Elm Street with an eternal vengeance. It's, it's terrible stuff. But here's the thing. I mean, that is the dominant view of hell throughout the church tradition, and there's some scripture that seems to back that up, that it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Uh, For example, in Matthew 25, uh, Jesus says the wicked will go to eternal punishment, and specifically mentions a fire there. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it says that uh, the wicked will be punished with everlasting destruction, using that same word, ionion, everlasting destruction. Hebrews 6 says the wicked suffer eternal judgment. And so there seems to be some biblical backing to this idea that the unredeemed will suffer excruciating pain forever and ever and ever. It is, if you think about it, with any kind of depth and authenticity, the most nightmarish thing imaginable. As a, as a young child uh, in a very conservative Irish Catholic school, uh, they talked quite a bit about hell in second grade. The nun went on and on and on about hell. Um, and I began to have these terrible, terrible nightmares. I, I was like on the inside of a volcano, down this like pit. And there's a little ledge that I was standing on. My feet were half off of it, and there's there nothing to hold on to, so my back was up against the wall. And I'm just trying not to fall down, because beneath me, a ways down, is this molten lava, this red-orange, it, it's fire, it's like liquid fire. And I look down there, and there are people that are just screaming, bloody, excruciating, you know, murderous things, that are just in pain. And I'm terrified. I'm trying not to fall. And then these two demons in typical second grade, you know, picture, the horns and everything, come up and they're laughing at me and they start to taunt me. They start to kind of like push me, trying to get me to lose my balance. And I'm aware that if I fall into that pit, which is inevitable now, I will never, ever, ever get out. And I would wake up and my heart would just be pounding. It was, I, was, I was in sweats. It was, it was just a nightmare. The worst imaginable nightmare. And the question is, that I want to wrestle with here is, is that nightmare accurate? Now, what makes this passage even more disturbing is that the guy in hell can talk to the people in heaven and they can see one another. And that actually has also been part of the church tradition about hell. I remember when I first came out, I was reading Tertullian, a second century theologian, and all of a sudden he starts talking about one of the delights of heaven will be watching the torments of the damned in hell. 
And he goes on and on and on about it. Uh, he goes, these gladiators, you know, they, they, they bring us to the Colosseum and they torture us and set us on fire and feed us to lion and they have such a good time, uh, but they don't know their time is coming. And someday we'll be in the stands watching them get tortured, but it'll be throughout eternity. Woo! And then St. Thomas Aquinas, middle-aged theologian, does the same thing. That one of our, we will watch the just damnation of the unredeemed and it will be part of our joy. I don't get that. I'll just confess to you, I don't get that at all. Um, to be able to see this happening, I don't care how evil someone is, how terrible they are, how much you hate them. You know, watching somebody in flames get tortured, uh, well, maybe for an hour or two, okay, fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> but after a year or 10 years or a, a million years, wouldn't it start to get old? Can we turn the channel? I mean, this is getting boring. I, I, I just, I, 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 don't, I don't get that. In fact, what if you see somebody you know? What if you see somebody you love? Down there, hey, Charlie, sorry, uh, you know, I should have witnessed to you more, I guess, I don't know. I, 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 how can you go on enjoying heaven when right outside your door, just down the block, are people being tortured in flames, being burned alive, but they won't get burned up? That is difficult. And what if it's somebody you love, your child, who didn't make it? And then, I, then there's this. I find that the, the more I grow in Christ, and I'm sure you found it too, the more that you start to not just love your loved ones, but you start to love even your enemies. You start to develop a compassion for everybody. You just have a love for people and, and, and hatred and animosity and the desire for vengeance goes out the window and you just have this love even for your worst enemies. And I'm thinking that in heaven that will be perfected, right? So in heaven I'll be loving all of these people. And now I'm really wondering how am I going to sit there and enjoy the banquet supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when there's people that I love uh, being tortured. And then I've got to wonder, however, good, however much our love will be perfected, God's love is more than that. So he, God created them and died for them. So now I've got to really wonder, how is God going to enjoy heaven while this torture is going on forever and ever? And then it leads to a whole bunch of other questions, and I'm just being honest here. I'm just thinking out loud. I think these are legitimate questions. Three other sets of questions that I want to just raise. That have to do with the Bible. How is eternal punishment consistent with the biblical theme that you find all over in, in a lot of different ways? That God's anger lasts for a moment, but his love, mercy, and favor lasts forever. How do you put those things together? God's anger endures for a moment, but his mercy endures forever. If people are tortured forever after they die, it seems to me that the reverse is true. God's love for them endured for a moment, for their lifetime, but once they're dead, now, now he turns on his, his vicious wrath and it never ends. His love endures for a moment, but his anger endures forever. How do you reconcile those things? It becomes particularly challenging when you consider several other verses. For example, Lamentations 3, which, which says, though Yahweh brings grief, he does that, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing and unending, which you saying about earlier, his unending love. For he does not, listen to this, he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to any human being. Affliction and grief are never God's ideal will. He uses them, yes, to punish people, to teach people, to chastise people, to discipline people, but that's never his last word, compassion and love are his final word. But how is that consistent with the teaching that God will eternally afflict people in the torments of hell? Now, maybe you'll say, well, wait a minute, God's not the one uh, afflicting them. Um, 
they're afflicting themselves. They put themselves there. They deserve that. And I would agree with you. Uh, They put themselves there. I I don't believe, some Christians teach this, but I don't believe that God predestined them to go to hell. I don't think he wants anyone to go to hell. But they're there, and they, they put themselves there. So yes, that's true. But at the same time, being honest here, maybe I think too much. I've been accused of that, but, but, but I think it's a good question. God is the one who holds everything in existence, Hebrews 1.3. He holds all things together by the word of his power. Nothing exists unless God's willing it to exist, holding it in existence. So here God is holding these people in existence in this tortured state. And why? Uh, and the traditional teaching, he's not trying to redeem them anymore. He's not trying to teach them a lesson. He's not trying to make a point. The only purpose for their existing is to experience nightmarish pain. God's holding them in existence so they'll continue to experience hopeless, nightmarish pain. How is that consistent with the teaching that he doesn't willingly afflict any human being? Another set of questions is this. How is eternal punishment consistent with the teaching that God is love? Love isn't simply something that God does. Love is the essence of who God is. Everything God does expresses who he is, so everything God does is motivated by love. Just like the Bible tells us, commands us to to be motivated by love in all that we do. Why? Because we're supposed to be godly, and that's what God is like. So everything God does is motivated by love. Which leads to this question. How is it loving to keep people burning alive forever and ever and ever and ever? I'm just wondering that out loud. Third set of questions is this. How is the teaching on eternal torment consistent with the Bible's teaching regarding God's final victory? The Bible teaches over and over again. gives us this marvelous picture of the end. And, 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 and it, 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 it's just is, is glorious. It's all glorious without qualification. The Bible says, for example... That all things will be brought together under one head, who is Christ, Ephesians 1. There's this glorious picture there of Christ reigning. Everything is now uh, uh, part of his body. It, it's, it's all under him, and he's the head over all things. The Bible says that someday God will be all in all. His love will define every square inch of the cosmos. The Bible tells us that someday all creatures in heaven and earth will bow in worship before the throne. The Bible tells us that all things will be restored someday and everything will be reconciled to God. Colossians 1 and Acts 3 and other passages. The Bible gives us a picture of of the final state uh, as being one in which there'll be no more sorrow and no more tears to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Uh, There'll there'll be no more violence and, and no more death. Revelations 21 and a bunch of other passages. So what I'm wondering, just to be honest with you, is this. How can God be all in all if throughout eternity, Satan will be torturing people, rebellious people in hell. Uh, how can we say that all things will be restored and reconciled to God if throughout eternity there's going to be this, this valley of despair where people aren't reconciled to God? How can we say there'll be no more tears and no more sorrow if for a good portion of humanity there'll be nothing but, for all eternity, tears and sorrow? And how can we look forward to a day when there'll be no more violence if throughout eternity people are going to be being burned alive? Because it seems to me burning someone alive is sort of a violent act. And even if you take that as a metaphor, it's still a very violent metaphor, denoting something violent. These are just some of the questions that I have regarding this traditional teaching about eternal conscious suffering. And it makes me wonder if there's another way of looking at things. Now, if we come to the conclusion that this is just what the Bible teaches, 
That's all there is to say about it. Well, then, then we just got to deal with that. Um, you know, if it, it, some things are just beyond our capacity to figure out, and we just got to say it's a mystery. But whenever we find things in the Bible that really don't seem to match up, as I just gave you here, there's, there, there's tensions. I, I think it's, it's reasonable and even godly to ask the question, might we be missing something? Perhaps we, we misunderstood something. Let's look at it again. Is there a way of bringing these things together as much as possible? There'll always be an element of mystery, of course. Uh, but if it's possible to, to, to bring some coherence to this and make things consistent, I, I think it's important that we try to do that. People differ a little bit on this, but, but, but for everybody to some degree, and for some of us to a large degree, our heart has trouble being passionate about something that our head can't make any sense out of. The more congruity there is in your head between in your view of God and the world and whatever, the more your heart can get involved in it and say yes to it. If something just seems utterly, utterly irrational and nonsensical, you may still believe it, but it's harder, and for some of us, almost impossible to get passionately behind it. So it makes sense to say, is there another way of looking at this? And I'm going to offer here another way of looking at it. You don't have to agree. If you come to the conclusion that the Bible teaches that, in fact, there'll be this eternal torture, then I respect you for that, and, and that's fine. You know, what's important is that we're all authentic and honest in wrestling with the text. There's four considerations that lead me to consider an alternative perspective. It's a perspective that has been taught uh, in, in, in various times and places throughout church history. It was particularly present in the early church, uh, but it's never been the dominant view. Some argue that it was the dominant view in the early church, but um, that's questionable. But in any case, it's not altogether new. To get at that position, I'm going to very briefly outline four biblical considerations. Okay, so just follow me and think about this. Number one, remember that the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is a parable. And as I said several weeks ago in talking about the parable of the dishonest manager, it's really important when you're interpreting parables that you pay attention to the main point or points and realize that everything else is a prop, a setup to make that point. It's like telling a joke. In a, with a joke, the, main, the, the, the punchline is everything, and everything else about the joke is just there to, to lead you to that punchline. That's how parables are. The main point is the only point you're supposed to get. And so with the parable of the dishonest manager, it would really be wrong to try to deduce from that parable principles of management. Oh, I guess Jesus is saying it's okay for us to be dishonest. No, he's not saying that. That wasn't the point of the parable. The point of the parable is not that we should be dishonest like the manager, but that we should have the forethought of the manager. We should be looking ahead. So also here. The main point I'll get to next week, but it's not, the point of this parable is not to teach us the nature of heaven and the nature of hell or anything of the sort. And so we've got to be very careful about drawing any conclusions about heaven or hell based on this parable. Number two, we need to realize that there are many, a diversity of metaphors used to describe God's final punishment in the Bible. For example, Gehenna is one. Gehenna is the word that's translated hell in the New Testament. But it literally referred to a valley that was a dump outside of Jerusalem, the valley of Gehom. And so when Jesus talks about hell, he's referring to this dump that everyone knows about. To reject God is to be thrown out into the dump. Now everyone would know that he's talking metaphorically. It's a metaphor. He's simply saying if you're not compatible with God, 
then you're not fit for the purpose for which you were created, and so you'll be thrown away like everything else gets thrown away that's no longer fit for the reason that it exists, and it goes out into the dump in, in, uh, uh, outside of Jerusalem. But it's a metaphor. You've got to be careful about pressing it too much for literal details. Another metaphor is being consumed with unquenchable fire. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist says that the Messiah will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, but burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So there's the gathering in the barn, the wheat, and then there's the burning up of the chaff. But note that the chaff gets burned up. The unquenchable fire, by the way, does not signify that the chaff will get, be getting burned forever and ever and ever. But rather, it, it denotes that the chaff can't hope to put the fire out before the fire does what the fire does, and that is burn it up. Uh, unquenchable refers not to the duration of the fire, but to how the fire is unavoidable. And you look at every reference to unquenchable fire in the Bible, and it's used in the Old and the New Testament, and that's what it denotes, the certainty of being consumed by this fire. Here's another set of metaphors. Separation, darkness, sorrow, and rage. In Matthew 8, Jesus says that the wicked will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, here, the metaphor is darkness. Now, in some ways, that's a little bit in tension with the metaphor of fire, isn't it? Because fire gives light. If it was all fire, well, then there'd be quite a bit of light there, wouldn't there? Uh, and so, it, it, but if you understand that he's speaking metaphorically, he's trying to communicate a horrifying situation using symbols, using metaphors, well then there's no problem with there being a little bit of a conflict because it's not meant to be taken literally. He says there'll be gnashing of teeth. Weeping, you know, sorrow, of course. And then there's gnashing of teeth. And I heard in my early Christian days that that denotes pain. They're in such pain, they're grinding their teeth. But if you look at, at how that phrase is used throughout the Bible, it's an, it's an idiom that denotes not pain, but rage. And sometimes just distress and frustration. But it doesn't denote pain. The people that he's talking about are mad. But they're not grinding their teeth in pain. Okay, so there's a, a diversity of metaphors. Number three, I think it's significant that we pay attention to the three most common ways the Bible refers to God's final punishment. So far as I can tell, and I've researched this quite extensively, here's the three most common ways the Bible refers to the judgment of the unredeemed. Number one is death. It's not the number one way, but it's among the top three. Death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Know the contrast between life and death. And that's a, the, one of the most common ways the Bible speaks about uh, the judgment of the unredeemed. Note that eternal life is a gift that God gives. And as you'll find throughout most of the Bible, it's not that people inherently live forever, but rather God gives that as a gift to the righteous, but denies it of the unrighteous, and uh, that's why they die. James 1 says that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. And you find variations of this metaphor used throughout the Bible. For example, you'll read on occasion, it talks about the wicked will have their name blotted out of the book of life. That means they die. They're blotted out. A second common way is, is destruction. Jesus contrasts the, broad, the narrow way that leads to life with a path that's broad that leads to destruction. And he says that we're to fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So this idea of total destruction... That's what happens when you get thrown out into Gehenna. You get destroyed. 
But possibly the, the most common way that the, the Bible, both Old and New Testament, speak about the final punishment of the wicked is that they perish. They perish. God so loved the world, all of us know this verse, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And you find that phrase used all over the place. You find variations on it, especially in the Old Testament. For example, it says in Psalms that the wicked will vanish like smoke rising in the night. Uh, like a dream when one awakes will be the wicked after God judges them. You wake up and the dream just sort of fades away. They will not be remembered. You find that phrase over and over again. Obadiah 16 says, The, the wicked shall be as though they had never been. It means that their final state will be as though they never were created in the first place. And I find that hard to reconcile with this idea that the wicked will be tortured in flames uh, and conscious and alive uh, throughout eternity. Finally, the Bible sometimes speaks of things being eternal in consequence, not duration. And here's what I mean by that. In Hebrews 5, it says, The Son became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. Eternal salvation. Now, does that mean that we'll be eternally experiencing salvation? Because that would mean that we're eternally experiencing forgiveness, which means we must be eternally sinning because we need forgiveness and salvation. Does it mean that? Or does it mean that once we're saved, once we've entered into the uh, saving state, it lasts forever? Its consequence is eternal. The second interpretation, I think, is far more plausible. And I don't get into the issue of eternal security. I'm not speaking about that. I'm talking about once we're in heaven uh, and have experienced the salvation of God, because the Bible refers to salvation both past, present, and future, but once it's finalized, it's finalized. We don't endure it forever. But we, the consequences of it last forever. So also it says in Hebrews 9 that Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Now does that mean that we'll be eternally experiencing rede- redemption? That we, we endure eternal redemption? Because that means we must be eternally sinning and Jesus must be eternally forgiving us. And there's no evidence that that's going to be happening in heaven. In fact, this passage rules out that possibility because it says Jesus, once and for all, went into the holy place. And that's how that he did it once, but now we have eternal redemption. We don't endure it eternally, but once we have it, it lasts eternally. It's irrevocable. There's no going back. In that light, it's possible. If we have other reasons for thinking this way, it's possible that when the Bible refers to eternal damnation and eternal punishment, and eternal destruction. It's not saying that the wicked will be uh, enduring that eternally, but that once they're judged, finally, there's no going back. There's no second chance. It goes on forever and ever and ever. In fact, I have trouble interpreting the phrase eternal destruction any other way. How can you be eternally in the process of being destroyed? Um, It seems like sooner or later you'll get to the ultimate destruction. But I can easily understand how once you're destroyed, it's eternal. You've blown the chance to enter into the redeemed state. So in light of this, I'll just tell you how I put it together. If the shoe fits, wear it. If you've got a better way of looking at it, uh, I'm fine with that too. But just try this on. And I, for me, I'll just tell you that I have found this to be a, a tremendously freeing uh, perspective. I see God's love as a fire that purifies all that is consistent with God's character and will, 
but it ultimately burns up everything that resists it and that refuses to turn. The Bible teaches that everything and everyone will be purged by this metaphorical fire. Paul says that everyone's life work, talking about believers now, will be tried by fire to see what sort it is. And if it's made of of gold and silver, if it's consistent, if it's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, it gets purified and refined, perfected. But if it's based on wood or straw, it gets burned up. So the question is, what kind of chaff do you have in your life? And what kind of gold and silver do you have in your life? Peter says that the whole creation will be purged by this fire. And it will purify what can be purified, but it ultimately destroys, he says, the ungodly. It's one, in my view, it's one and the same fire. A fire that lovingly purges all that it can, but also also justly destroys all that it has to. And I know God's heart, God's will is that he would purify all and destroy none. He's not one that any should perish, but that all should come to life. But I also know that God won't make a robot out of anybody. And if in the very end someone refuses to turn and it's hopeless, then that same love burns them up. I believe that whatever punishment God's justice requires will be meted out. And so for some, this consuming fire may last for ages and ages. For others, it may just be a moment. But once justice is served, my conviction is that if the unredeemed remain hopelessly unrepentant and resist God's love, they're ultimately destroyed by God's love. God lovingly and justly makes them as though they never were. It's loving because if he didn't do this, they would go on in this miserable, miserable state forever and ever and ever. So as an act of love, it's like divine euthanasia. He puts them out of existence. It's also just because they don't deserve to go on living. Here, justice and mercy, God's love and God's wrath become one. And the act of destroying them mean, need, need, me, need mean nothing other than he withdraws his creative support of them. Nothing exists without God holding it into existence. And so when God sees, after however many ages of attempts, that this person is hopelessly set against him, he just withdraws his creative power. And they are as though they never were. At that point, in my view, the wicked are as though they never were. They're as smoke that arose in the night like a dream when one awakes. And it's at that point that, that I, I believe the creation is now free of all evil, free of all rebellion, free of all sin, free of all pain, free of all suffering. Uh, it's at that point that everything in, in heaven and earth is restored and reconciled. It's at that point that every knee bows and, t- and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's at that point that Christ is the head of the whole creation, which is now his body. And it's at that point where that God is all in all, because God's love defines every square inch of the cosmos. And I, for one, can't wait for that day to happen. Amen. Now, let me close with this. Whether you agree with me or not, I want you just to think about that. Uh, I, I, I find it to be very freeing, and, and many others, it just seems, to, it, it seems more consistent to me uh, with the God that's revealed in Jesus Christ and with all that the Bible teaches about the, the ultimate judgment uh, than the traditional view. But as I said, people see it differently, and, and we've got to cut each other slack on that. But whether you agree or not, let me close with this three brief words about this final punishment. Number one, you've got to know, you've got to know that God created you not for death, but for life. He wants you to have eternal life. He created you with the goal of you living with him for eternity. 
He's not willing that any should perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance, to turn from your self-centered way and live a God-centered way because that's what's good for you, to be a mirror of God's love throughout eternity. Jesus died for that to happen for you. And the way you start walking with God is just by submitting, turning over the, 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 rain, the reins of your life to him and say, Lord, I want to live the way you want me to live and develop a relationship with him. Number two, you've got to know that however else you interpret all the different metaphors in the Bible uh, about the final judgment, they all communicate something terrible. Rejecting God is Gehenna. It's the dump. It's darkness. It's, it's, it's rage. It's sorrow. It's nightmarish. However you interpret the, the, the metaphors, they all communicate that. Because when you reject God, you're rejecting the source of all that is good and true and beautiful and loving and, and it makes life worthwhile. You are inviting misery on yourself now and later. And it's altogether unnecessary. Third, and finally, the only sure way to be compatible with God's love is to submit your life completely to Christ and align yourself with the kingdom community. Uh, God begins the process of making you compatible with his will and with his holy fire when you surrender to him and align yourself with his purposes. Jesus Christ is your savior, and this is a way of saying, I accept Jesus Christ as my savior. But we're not talking about some kind of fire insurance prayer that you pray to get out of hell. I know you're, you're get out of jail for free card. The way, the way in God's plan you escape the fear of hell is by getting off the road that leads there. And you start walking a different way, a God-centered way, a submitted way. And now God begins to, by his great mercy and grace, work in your life. And he begins to burn up the chaff now and begins to purge uh, the gold and the silver now. So you've got nothing to fear about encountering his fierce love uh, later on. An essential part of God's purpose for all of us is being aligned in the community, joining the kingdom community that God is using to accomplish his will here on earth as it is in heaven. And so if you are here or if you're listening through podcasts or television and and you're, you're not submitted to Jesus Christ, and I mean submitted, I'm not talking about what you theoretically believe, uh, that, that isn't the real issue. Have you acted on that belief by submitting your life to him? That's where the kingdom starts. And if you're not in that situation, I encourage you to do that now. In this auditorium, I'm going to encourage you after the service is done to come forward and there'll be people here up front uh, who are available either to pray with or to talk to about becoming a kingdom person. We have several uh, who did this uh, after this, the last service. Don't leave in that state. For others of us, I want you to consider what aspects of your life are, are chaff, what aspects are gold and silver? In fact, we have, um, we, we, you know, the, the, the weekend here, we see a, a training seminar. Uh, this isn't the fullness of the kingdom. This is just a kingdom training. And so we are going to try this. When we can, we're going to have uh, uh, some little writing assignment or some, some assignments written out based on the teaching for you to think about throughout the week. And some of that will involve some actions throughout the week, things to talk to people about. And so... Uh, I would like us all to stop by at the hub when you leave, and we have these, these, these uh, papers here. Just ask a couple questions. Talk about this with a friend or, or whatever. Um, and then on the back of it, it has um, uh, an opportunity for you, if God does something in your life, and you're impacted by the message, to tell us about it. And we want to be collecting testimonies along these lines. So if you're not submitted, I encourage you to come forward. If you are submitted to Christ, be, be reflecting on your view of God and your view of hell and all that. Chew on this message.
but also be examining your life. To be purging out, burning up the chaff stuff now and refining the gold stuff now. Let me close with a word of prayer. And as I do, with the prayer team come forward? And just know that the altar is open for any prayer needs that you might want to address after the service. Father, I thank you, God, that you are loving and just and that your wrath is simply the heat of your love when your love is being refused and that it's there to turn us, to refine us, to purge us. Everything you do, God, even the fires of hell is done out of your love. Help us to have a pure, undiluted vision of you. And God, whatever views of hell people may have here, I pray, Lord God, that for believers, uh, there would be uh, a freedom from fear of that. And God, that, that they would have a vision of you that is, that, that is uh, expressed in Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And God, give us also a sense, knowing that this judgment is coming, a sense of urgency to reach out to people, to share the gospel to love them into the kingdom, to serve them into the kingdom, sometimes to party with them into the kingdom, however it may look, Lord God. Give us a burden for the lost. Do your work in our life. Be burning away the chaff now. Be refining the gold now, Lord God, that we may be altogether compatible with your fiery love. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the kingdom people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go build the kingdom.